Welcome to the Improve the News podcast for Wednesday, May 3rd, 2023, where we separate the spin from the facts. I'm Scott Wallace. And I'm Melissa Topsher with today's headlines. Biden approves the deployment of 1,500 troops to the southern border. A senior member of Palestine's Islamic Jihad on hunger strike dies in an Israeli jail. The U.S. estimates that 20,000 Russians have been killed in Ukraine since December. The U.N. approves a travel exemption for Afghanistan's Taliban. Biden calls a meeting as the Treasury Department warns of a June default. The White House announces plans to end most COVID vaccine mandates. Australia says it will ban non-prescription vapes. The godfather of AI warns of looming AI dangers. Hollywood writers strike after negotiations stall. And a Korean student devours a $120,000 banana art piece. Biden is sending 1,500 troops to the U.S. southern border ahead of Title 42's end. Here are the facts as agreed upon by the Associated Press, Al Jazeera, Politico, and The Hill. The Biden administration on Tuesday announced it will be sending 1,500 troops to the U.S. southern border. This comes ahead of an expected surge of migrants that will happen after COVID restrictions that allowed U.S. officials to turn away thousands of migrants end on May 11th. The Pentagon approved the U.S. Department of Homeland Security's request for the military personnel, which could arrive at the border as soon as May 10th, the day before Title 42 is scheduled to expire. Although the troops will be armed for self-defense, they will serve a monitoring and administrative role, data entry, warehouse support, and detection to fill critical capability gaps. Title 42, which was instituted during the Trump administration, makes it permissible to expel migrants and block them from seeking asylum as a COVID public health precaution. The DHS is anticipating an increase in attempted border crossings after the end of Title 42. Already, U.S. officials encountered more than 190,000 migrants at the border in March. Okay, on this program, we separate the spin from the facts. Those are the facts. Now our narrative spins. Let's start with the Republican narrative from Fox News. Biden continues to be weak on border enforcement. The administration has been expelling less than 50 percent of migrants under Title 42 and letting potentially dangerous individuals into the country while awaiting their hearings. Now he's going to send less than 2,000 troops south to be administrators instead of enforcers. Clearly, the president doesn't get it, and hopefully the upcoming invasion won't result in tragedy for the U.S. And here's the Democratic narrative from CNN. There's a humane way to secure the border, and that's exactly the tact Biden has taken here. There are already several thousand National Guard troops down there, and the reinforcements will make it easier on the back end to ensure those with legitimate asylum claims get their hearings, while other migrants get turned back. The border isn't open now, and it won't be after the end of Title 42. So here's why I wouldn't be a good president. This is the only reason. Uh, (laughs) This past weekend, John Oliver's show kind of tackled Biden being, you know, Biden's record on immigration. And now I would be worried if I was Biden that me sending these things down looks like I'm like react. I can't do it now that he just talked about it. I would have to wait a couple weeks. Yeah. 
Oh, so a lot of optics uh, and a lot of changing yeah. your mind based on how the media is portraying you. Low self-esteem goes well, continue. Yep. I'm not sure you'd be the first president or a person in policy to uh, to behave this way. I think uh, you're probably right. I might, yeah, uh, yeah. Might be all of all of them. Yeah. That might be a, gr- it might be a prerequisite. Are you saying I'd be a great president? I think th- maybe that's what I'm saying. Cotter Adnan dies in Israeli prison after his hunger strike. Here are the facts as agreed upon by BBC News, The Times of Israel, Middle East Eye, The Guardian, Al Jazeera, and the Jewish News Syndicate. Cotter Adnan, a senior member of the militant Palestinian group Islamic Jihad, who was charged and indicted with belonging to a terrorist organization, died Tuesday in an Israeli prison after some 87 days on hunger strike. Adnan, who went on hunger strike shortly after his arrest on February 5th, was found unconscious Tuesday morning in his cell at Nitzan Prison and was taken to a hospital outside Tel Aviv, where he was pronounced dead after resuscitation efforts. According to Israeli accounts, Adnan, reportedly the first Palestinian to die as a result of a hunger strike in Israeli detention since 1992, refused medical treatment while his family accused Israeli authorities of medical neglect for declining to relocate him to a civilian hospital. Since 2004, the 44-year-old had reportedly been on hunger strike five times, including for 55 days in 2015 to protest his arrest under the so-called administrative detention, which allows suspects to be held for renewable six-month periods without charge or trial. Adnan, originally from Arabah, close to the town of Janine in the occupied West Bank, was one of more than 1,000 Palestinians currently detained in Israel without charge or trial, the largest number since 2003, the Israeli human rights group Hamoked claims. Shortly after the announcement of the Palestinians' death, the Israeli military said that rockets were fired from Gaza into Israeli territory and hit unpopulated areas indicating a possible further escalation of Israeli-Palestinian violence. Those were the facts, and here are the narrative spins. We'll start with a pro-Palestine narrative from Press TV. Adnan's death was deliberate murder and reveals once again the true nature of Israel's regime and its prison system. Adnan's death needs to result in an international criminal court investigation to hold Tel Aviv accountable for what is the latest in a long list of crimes against leading Palestinian freedom fighters. The international community can no longer turn a blind eye to Israel and must take immediate action to protect Palestinians in Israel's prisons from arbitrary detention and crimes against humanity. Contrast that with this pro-Israel narrative from Israel National News. While the Palestinians are now proclaiming a new martyr and have found yet another reason to threaten Israeli security, the international community must not ignore the fact that Adnan was imprisoned because of his membership in the Islamic Jihad terrorist organization. Moreover, while tragic, his death was self-inflicted as he refused any medical care offered to him. Israel must not allow itself to be blackmailed by terrorists who use hunger strikes as leverage to force their release. The U.S. believes 20,000 Russians were killed fighting in Ukraine since December. Here are the facts agreed upon by Associated Press, BBC News, Reuters, and Al Jazeera. Russia is estimated to have suffered at least 100,000 casualties, including 20,000 killed in only five months of fighting since December, the White House said on Monday. 
John Kirby, the White House National Security Council spokesman, told reporters the estimate is based on newly declassified American intelligence. He did not detail how the figures were derived, and they cannot be independently confirmed. Last month, leaked Pentagon documents dating to February put Russian losses between 189,000 and 223,000 casualties, with 35 to 43,000 killed in action since the beginning of the war. One Russian official said the nature of the operations have been reduced in terms of geographic spread, so the overall numbers are reducing. In Monday's briefing, Kirby said the latest figures put out by the White House showed that Russia had an unsuccessful winter campaign. The bottom line is that Russia's attempted offensive has backfired after months of fighting and extraordinary losses. He said, adding that Russia had been unable to seize any strategically significant territory despite its efforts. Kirby further added that roughly half of those killed came from Wagner PMC, the Russian mercenary group leading Russia's charge in Bakhmut. Thanks for those facts, Melissa. We have a pro-establishment narrative from The Guardian. The White House estimates show that Russia has had a devastating few months of fighting, an acceleration from the beginning of the war, and more losses than some of the bloodiest battles of World War II. Russia is on the back foot as Ukraine's counteroffensive approaches. And here's the establishment critical narrative from Unheard. If the numbers are to be trusted, the Russia-Ukraine war would be one of the bloodiest in modern history. The problem is that all parties have an interest in minimizing their losses while exaggerating those of their enemies. Getting accurate casualty data is fraught with difficulties, and these numbers should not be accepted blindly. And we have another nerd narrative. The Metaculous community predicts that there's a 75% chance that Russia will control any formerly Ukrainian territories other than Luhansk, Donetsk, or Crimea on January 1st, 2024. Scott, I just figured out what happened. What's that? So during the so COVID happened, pandemic mm-hmm. happened, everything shuts down, including the Russian bathhouse. Now the Kremlin is not mm. getting their weekly release, relaxation, their laughter. Snits. Yeah. Yeah, like let all the pores breathe and you know, self-care, man. That would like a daily steam or sauna would be something I would. I, I don't. I wouldn't like get into a lot of the trappings of being rich. I don't think. I mean, we'll see. I hope to find out someday. But <laughs> what would I would do to use my resources? Like, yeah, I'm gonna take a, like a like a 20 minute steam every day or something. Like, I think that would have a great physical effect, hygienic effect, me- mental health effect. That's something that I would really want to like add into my uh, my routine. Yeah, I'm with you there. I think um, a lot to be gained, a lot to be gained. And then there's the cold plunge stuff. I might get into that, too. That's less fun. But like, you know, oh, a cold plunge awesome. and a steam. It, it's awesome. But it's it's I, I did a cold plunge the other day. I, went, I had a we had a day pass at a fancy health club and I was doing the I did the hot tub cold plunge, you know, thing. It's not easy. You know, you, you have no, to. It's not. You have, it, it takes some resolute, you know, you see these athletes in these ice baths and things oh like God. that after games. Like, that's serious, man. Yeah. We used, to, we used to do that in high school after track and field. We'd get into giant trash barrels of, of ice water. And and it was hilarious because we we're high schoolers and we were giggling and we we're in and out of the thing. But right. the one in downtown Seattle um, has got it set up to where uh, it's 
It's nice. The sauna is 200 degrees. Like you, they say, do not touch the walls. Right. Or you right. would burn Any yourself. Any conductivity, you would burn yourself. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Because the walls are brick. Like you're basically in a pizza oven. Right. And then mm. you stay in there for as long as you can handle it. And you're supposed to wear the wool cap so you get even hotter to oh keep the, the heat in. Then you plunge into 40 degrees pool and you try to stay in there for like a minute or two. And it's just wow. like all Wim Hof, you know, it's like all mind over matter and like, <sighs> like hot breathing. Yep. And uh, yeah. And uh, and you get better at it. And I'm telling you, man, then you go out in the, in the salt bath. Oh, life amazing. is good. Life yeah. is good. Literally finances are what's keeping me from doing that all the time. That's yeah. that's a real that's a real thing I would add into my routine. Private jet too. The UN approves the Taliban's financial ministers meeting with Pakistan and China. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, Reuters, and News 18. Malawi Amir Khan Mutaki, the Taliban's interim foreign minister, has reportedly received permission from a U.N. Security Council committee to travel from Afghanistan to Pakistan May 6th through 9th for meetings with his counterparts from Pakistan and China. This reportedly comes upon request from Pakistan's U.N. mission, which will cover the cost of the trip, on Monday for a travel exemption for Mutaki, who is under U.N. Security Council sanctions, including a travel ban, asset freeze, and arms embargo. Although a meeting wasn't divulged, China and Pakistan have each said they would consider allowing Taliban-led Afghanistan to be part of the China-Pakistan Economic Corridor, or CPEC, a multi-billion dollar infrastructure project. Last month, the UN Security Council allowed Mutaki to travel to Uzbekistan, where he met with neighboring foreign ministers to discuss peace and security. The exemption comes alongside a two-day Security Council committee meeting that started on Monday in Doha, Qatar, where UN special envoys on Afghanistan from nearly two dozen nations have gathered to discuss how to engage with the Taliban. The Taliban retook power in Afghanistan in August 2021 as U.S. forces withdrew after 20 years. The international community hasn't recognized the Taliban government on the basis of alleged human rights violations. Those were the facts, and here are the narrative spins, beginning with a pro-establishment narrative from Bloomberg. The world must present a unified front and isolate the Taliban until they make the crucial reforms necessary to be considered an equal partner with the rest of the world. Allowing Taliban officials to travel and meet with counterparts abroad only drums up unfair anti-American sentiments and empowers the Taliban to never change their brutal ways. And there's an establishment critical narrative from the South China Morning Post. The only way to get the Taliban to reform and to aid in the fight against terrorism is to engage with their foreign ministers because they're in charge in Afghanistan and won't be going anywhere soon. While respecting the Taliban's religion and customs, they can be urged to be more inclusive and progressive while also acting to make Asia a safer continent. And there's another nerd narrative saying there's a 25% chance the U.S. will recognize the Islamic Emirates of Afghanistan before 2030. That's according to the Metaculous Prediction Community. Yellen warns the U.S. could default by June. Here are the facts as agreed upon by the BBC News, Reuters, Forbes, Associated Press, The Guardian, and NBC. On Monday, U.S. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen wrote to Congress urging it to raise the debt ceiling as soon as possible, claiming that the U.S. may run out of cash by June 1st if Washington fails to reach an agreement. 
While Yellen acknowledged the prediction could be off by a few weeks, it's slightly sooner than the Treasury's previous estimates after the U.S. hit its borrowing cap of $31.4 trillion on January 19th. Since the U.S. hit its debt ceiling, the Treasury has been using extraordinary measures to prevent default, borrowing from various government funds in order to finance operating expenses. Yellen continued that waiting until the last minute to suspend or increase the debt ceiling in previous cases has caused serious harm to business and consumer confidence, short-term borrowing costs, and the U.S. credit rating. Last week, House Republicans passed legislation by 217 to 215 to extend the debt ceiling by $1.5 trillion in exchange for an approximate reduction of the federal deficit by $4.8 trillion over a decade. However, the bill isn't expected to pass the Democrat-majority Senate. In response to Yellen's letter, President Joe Biden has invited the majority and minority leaders from both the Senate and the House to a meeting at the White House on May 9th in order to discuss the matter alongside potential budget negotiations. All right. Unsurprisingly, we have matching right and left narratives on this story. The Republican narrative comes from the Federalist. The GOP is compromised by passing a bill that has the potential to raise the debt ceiling, while Democrats wishing to extend the nation's credit card limit without any repercussions have so far produced nothing but complaints. It's now up to Democrats to find a middle ground between themselves in raising the ceiling while addressing the nation's dreadful fiscal state, just as Republicans have successfully managed to do. And here's the Democratic narrative from New Republic. The House debt ceiling bill was never expected to pass into law and is simply a message from the GOP. There's no universe in which a clean debt ceiling raise isn't politically advantageous for everyone. Yet the GOP continues to ignore this in order to advance its own selfish interests. Despite claims to the contrary, the nation's economic health continues to be held hostage by the far right of the party. And a cynical narrative comes from the Hill. While Republicans and Democrats continue to claim that they understand the danger that the U.S. will face if no agreement is reached, both sides continue to gamble with a default-catalyzed economic crisis, continuing a historical trend of disasters occurring because of partisan games that disregard the lives of millions. Both sides must remember the lost art of bipartisanship and come to a compromise together before it's too late. And there's a nerd narrative from the Metaculous Prediction community. There's a 95% chance that the statutory debt limit will be increased or suspended for at least 30 days in the U.S. before 2024. The White House aims to end most COVID vaccine mandates. Here are the facts as agreed upon by The Hill, The Washington Times, Reuters, New York Post, and The New York Times. The Biden administration announced Monday that it will end most vaccine requirements for federal workers, international travelers, contractors, Head Start employees, and healthcare workers at many hospitals on May 11th. This comes after House Representative Paul Gosser, Republican of Arizona, introduced a bill in February to end the pandemic national emergency, which was passed by all Republicans and some Democrats in a 229 to 197 vote. President Biden then signed the bill on April 10th. The move will now allow unvaccinated international travelers to enter the U.S. unhindered, including Serbian tennis star Novak Djokovic, who had been barred from competing in U.S. tournaments, but will now be eligible for the U.S. Open. 
Biden began his vaccine rollout as a voluntary effort in 2021 before mandating it after vaccine rates stalled and disease rates jumped due to new variants from overseas. This led to legal battles, with the U.S. Supreme Court eventually striking down the mandate for private companies but keeping the one for healthcare workers. As federal courts have blocked the vaccine mandate for federal workers since January 2022, an appeals court in December ruled the White House could not require federal contractors to impose mandates on their workers. Ending the national emergency will also mean Americans with private health insurance and Medicare plans won't be eligible for eight free at-home COVID tests each month. Private and Medicare patients may have to take on the cost of PCR tests, and hospitals will no longer receive higher Medicare payment rates for treating COVID patients. Thank you, Scott, for the facts on that story, and we'll start this round of spins with a left narrative from the White House. Biden's vaccine requirements protected both the American people and foreign nationals who wished to visit the U.S., While new variants were spreading like wildfire, the president understood the importance of vaccines and their role as the primary tool in combating the virus. Now that the pandemic is waning and the vaccine campaign was a success, the U.S. has entered a new phase of the COVID response that doesn't require such stringent policies. And the New York Post brings us this right narrative spin. Vaccine mandates were an unjustified attack on civil liberties. As Biden and his buddies in Big Pharma knew all along, the vaccines were not the only tool available to combat COVID, but they were the most profitable. Now that the media Big Pharma government complex has been exposed for its lies, the American people cannot let them off scot-free. Anyone who cares about the truth must investigate the apparent corporate government cover-up and hold those who lied accountable. I think most people um, stocked up on COVID tests like um, like they were going out of style. Yeah, we actually just uh, just got I went to the store on Sunday and picked up a bunch of them under the allowable limits. There were so many. There was more than you could possibly want to take. Well, if you just don't have to prove anything to anyone, then, yeah, yeah, nobody nobody wants to go through all that rigmarole. And I don't think anyone's reporting their test results to to any kind of higher authority anymore either so it doesn't like help data collection it's just a big yeah big nothing that's a good know. point I, w- I was at the doctor last week and she said yeah i think we're in a covid spike we just don't actually know because we don't have because no one's reporting it yeah so, well yeah there you have it australia will ban recreational vaping here are the facts as agreed upon by al jazeera the guardian cnn bbc news and first post On Tuesday, Australia announced a sweeping crackdown on vaping under its biggest anti-smoking reforms in over a decade. The government said it would take steps to ban single-use disposable vapes, limit nicotine levels in e-cigarettes, and prohibit imports of vaping products, including nicotine-free ones. In addition, the reforms mandate that vapes be sold only in pharmacies, requiring pharmaceutical-type packaging instead of bubblegum flavors, pink unicorns, or vapes disguised as highlighter pens. Meanwhile, Australian Health Minister Mark Butler accused tobacco companies of hooking the next generation of nicotine addicts by deliberately targeting teenagers with vapes readily available alongside lollies and chocolate bars in retail stores, becoming the number one behavioral issue in schools. In Australia, it's illegal to sell vaping products irrespective of nicotine content to people under 18 
However, research suggests more than 30 percent of 14 to 17-year-olds are vaping, with the majority of such cases involving nicotine. Selling, supplying, and possessing nicotine e-cigarettes without a doctor's prescription is also already illegal in Australia. Nonetheless, a thriving black market has meant such vapes are readily available in small convenience stores across the country. The Guardian brings us Narrative A. Recreational vaping was touted as a safer alternative to cigarettes and considered a therapeutic product to help long-term smokers kick the habit. However, instead of a recreational product, it has become a public health disaster, with the health risks from e-cigarettes significantly outweighing any potential benefits. While people will still be allowed to use vapes with a prescription in order to help them quit smoking, these reforms will protect young Australians from this life-threatening addiction. Narrative B comes from the Sydney Morning Herald. Vapes should be sold in convenience stores and retail shops from behind the counter under the same strict adults-only regulations as cigarettes to counter a thriving black market and prevent businesses from going bankrupt due to the latest ban. The right way is to allow adults to purchase regulated nicotine vapes through licensed retailers, which can help the government earn millions in tax revenue that goes missing as sales continue under the counter. The godfather of AI quits Google and warns about the dangers of artificial intelligence. Here are the facts as agreed upon by CNBC, The New York Times, CNN, The Verge, Indian Express, and Fox News. Jeffrey Hinton, a computer scientist who has been dubbed the godfather of AI, told The New York Times on Monday that he's quitting his part-time position at Google and will instead devote his time to warning the world about the potential threat of artificial intelligence. In 2012, Hinton and two of his University of Toronto graduate students created technology that later became the foundation for many current AI systems. He said he consoles himself with the excuse, if I hadn't done it, somebody else would have. Hinton's decision to speak out comes as lawmakers, advocacy groups, and tech insiders have raised concerns about the potential negative consequences of AI. The widely used ChatGPT has drawn particular attention as tech companies look to develop similar AI tools. Hinton said he hadn't been concerned about Google's relationship with AI until Microsoft recently launched its new GPT-4-powered Bing, challenging Google's core business and sparking a code-red response. He added that the fierce competition could spiral out of control. Since OpenAI released GPT-4, its new and vastly more powerful version of ChatGPT, in March, more than 1,000 technology leaders and researchers have signed the Future of Life Institute's open letter calling for a six-month pause on the development of more powerful systems, citing their profound risks to society and humanity. Hinton has echoed those fears, stating that progression since 2012, while astonishing, is likely just the tip of the iceberg. He didn't sign the letter at the time, but he has since claimed it was because he didn't want to criticize Google while working there. Thank you, Scott, for those facts. And we'll begin with a narrative A on this story from the New York Post. When the person known as the godfather of AI starts to overtly warn the public about the technology's immense dangers, you know the situation is serious. Hinton isn't alone in the scientific community in making dire warnings about AI, and the public must be aware and alert about the pace of AI development. 
While Hinton didn't want to smear his former employer, it's pretty obvious that Google is more concerned with keeping up in the AI arms race than the potential threat to humanity posed by irresponsible AI development. And narrative B comes from Technology Review. Jeffrey Hinton is one of the most accomplished and influential researchers of the last half decade, and his breakthroughs have been invaluable. It's natural for a pioneer of such a revolutionary technology to be worried about the potential consequences of its development. However, the processes and principles being used today aren't so different from those employed by Hinton over the last decade. Exploratory development is bound to prompt anxiety, but the potential benefit of advancing AI far outweighs its risks. And here's a nerd narrative from the Metaculous community saying there's a 50% chance that AIs will program programs that can program AIs by November of 2026. I think one problem with being an in a, a cutting-edge innovator now is that things are moving so fast that you may live to see the potential downside of whatever you invent, which wasn't the case back in the day. You know, right. whoever, you know the internal combustion engine, that's yeah, a good thing. Well, hundred years later, maybe maybe not. But there are all the guys that made it are long gone. You know, everything was you know, right. uh, everything now it moves too fast, and we got to see the consequences of our actions, which is not ever cool. Right, right. Hollywood writers strike after negotiations stall. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, BBC News, CBS, CBC, and CNN. After negotiations between the Writers Guild of America, or WGA, and several studios failed to reach a deal over pay, staffing, and concerns about artificial intelligence, over 11,000 film and TV writers went on strike Tuesday, forcing production to halt for film and scripted TV. The WGA, which said screenwriting was facing an existential crisis, has demanded a greater share of residuals from streaming, a ban on the use of AI in writing material, a staffing minimum of 6 to 12 writers per show, and a guaranteed minimum number of weeks of employment. The Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers, or AMPTP, a trade association negotiating on behalf of Hollywood companies, stated the main sticking points were the staffing minimum and guaranteed working weeks, but that they are prepared to improve their offer and continue negotiations. The streaming era has seen a shortening of season length for TV programs and, according to the WGA, a 46% reduction in showrunner pay compared to broadcast shows. Companies are also feeling pressure from investors to cut losses in digital media, with the Walt Disney Company set to lay off 7,000. Late-night TV is set to be the first to halt productions, while network TV and streaming will be mostly unaffected for the time being. The AMPTP claims over 20,000 crew members could lose work, with up to 600 productions being halted. The last WGA strike lasted for 100 days between 2007 and 2008 and is estimated to have an economic cost of $3 billion adjusted for inflation. Narrative A on this showbiz story comes from the New York Times. There's no Hollywood without the writers. All they are asking for is fair compensation to keep up with the changing trends in media consumption and to preserve their livelihoods. The streaming age has seen an explosion in the quality and quantity of content thanks to the writers who have been continually demeaned and undervalued. The studios need to offer the writers a deal that accurately reflects this. Narrative B comes from CNBC. 
These writers may have picked a fight they cannot win. The streaming boom is over, and the once cash-flush platforms are feeling the pinch. Platforms are in no rush to spend money or greenlight another prestige show as investors bear down on them to turn a profit. Everyone in the industry is grappling with this slowdown, and writers shouldn't receive special treatment. It's fashionable in the type of circles that talk about this thing uh, to say that that last WGA strike that happened in 2007-2008, that the writers ended up suffering as a result of their own strike because of uh, you know the reduction in the number of shows that were made and various other things. I uh, imagine that they'll really try to stick out for a better deal this time. But as that narrative says, it's it's not ideal timing. Yeah, and just grappling with the this pace of the streaming boom, like that narrative saying the streaming boom is over. Uh, and that everyone's feeling it. Well, you know, and then what's the next changing technology? But, you know, they, I think their goal is to set up some kind of platform that have some ground rules for how they are affected as technology moves forward. And I think residuals are a big part of that because. Yes, I, as I understand it, a lot of the deals at streaming platforms are buyout deals. Like we'll pay you right. this, this big amount right now. And it might be a big amount. And there's a, a number that would make sense. But. That's a lot of residuals for a long, you know, forever is a long time yeah. is uh, what I would say. And that mailbox money is uh, is pretty nice. As someone who's, uh, you know, gets several cents every month from old audiobooks that I've narrated, that mailbox money is pretty nice. Yeah. <laughs> I got a check for $5.55 in the mail yesterday. And here's an appealing final story. A Korean student eats a $120,000 banana artwork. Here are the facts as agreed upon by the South China Morning Post, the New York Post, BBC News, NPR Online News, and Independent. A South Korean art student has eaten a $120,000 art installation featuring a banana that was duct taped to a wall at the Liam Museum of Art in Seoul, a piece created by Italian artist Maruzio Catalan known as Comedian and presented in his We exhibit. No Hun So, a student at Seoul National University, was videotaped eating the banana and told the museum that he was hungry when asked why he ate it. After eating the fruit, No placed its peel back on its spot on the wall. He later said that the banana should be eaten since it's replaced every few days, adding that his actions constitute art as he's transformed Catalan's piece and put it on display. Museum workers quickly replaced the banana and the museum has said that it won't press charges against No. Comedian is the centerpiece of Catalan's exhibit at the Lium, which will be shown through July. Meanwhile, Catalan says that he has no problem at all with the student's actions. This isn't the first time the comedian's banana has been eaten, as in 2019, performance artist David Daruna consumed it after the piece sold for $120,000 at Art Basel in Miami. All right, thanks for that, Scott. We'll start this round of spins with Narrative A from The Star. It goes without saying that a banana can never be worth $120,000. And the art community's blind enthusiasm to accept this piece as art goes to show just how far society has fallen since the Renaissance. Art enthusiasts determined to force a deeper meaning on everything are now unable to perceive the obvious. Catalan just taped a banana to the wall. And narrative B comes from the conversation. While undoubtedly an unusual piece, art is in the eye of the beholder, and regardless of one's personal opinion, ultimately this is vandalism. 
Besides, everyday objects have been readily accepted as artwork since the mid-20th century, and Catalan's piece is actually a direct challenge to this notion. Melissa, have you seen Made You Look, the Netflix doc about fake art? No. Pretty good. It's a story about, you know, it's a whole thing about a scam that was run to sell fake art. Of course, gets into the philosophical of if it's if it's a perfect replica, what's the difference and all that, all that weird mm. stuff. Yeah. But I tell you, standing in front of an actual Van Gogh in the, in the Art Institute in Chicago versus the print that I have in my, my bedroom. That I think you have that too somewhere in your house. The cherry. Oh, trees. I do. Yeah. Yes, I do. <laughs> I do the cherry, cherry blossoms. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Standing standing in front of the actual Van Gogh. Uh, what's the the meadow? Uh, it was like a yellow meadow versus the print in that I have in my house from IKEA. It is a very different experience. I like at the uh, the MoMA in uh, New York City, and they know they're doing this. They put some like super famous household name art just kind of in like whatever spots as like a flex, I think. You know, like if you go yeah. to the Louvre, the Mona Lisa is in this huge room and it's by itself and you know it's mm. the Mona Lisa. Yeah. At the at like uh I practically bumped into melting clocks when I was there. It's just like on the whatever wall. <laughs> it's like, oh yeah, hey, you know what you're doing. You this is and they have a lot of famous art in the, you know, but if you like accidentally bump into Starry Night, that's kind of they know what they're doing. Yeah, yeah. Well, we just ran out of room, you know. There's yeah, so just to put this wherever. We <laughs> I am of the mind I like art. I'll be the first to say it. I like art. Okay, but I don't, there we but go. But I don't think a banana taped to a wall should be worth I would call it art. It's not worth $120,000. My youngest, my two-year-old, calls them bananas. Oh, banana. man. I love Me all those too. little things. Bananas. Thanks for listening to the Improve the News podcast for Wednesday, May 3rd, 2023. Each day we use machine learning to read about 5,000 articles from about 100 newspapers and figure out which ones are about the same stories. For each major story, our editorial team then extracts both the key facts that all articles agree on and the key narratives where the articles differ. For more information on Improve the News, please visit our website, improvethenews.org. You can also download the Improve the News app on the Apple App Store or Google Play. For Scott Wallace, I'm Melissa Topshire, inviting you to join us next time on Improve the News. Thank you.